You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Hello, we are back on the Oz Network for another movie review, solo movie review here on Oscar Bait Month, as I'm calling it. And by we are back on the Oz Network, I should probably just say I am back on the Oz Network. As I said, solo review here. The movie we're here to talk about today is The Shape of Water, which is uh, the latest movie from Guillermo del Toro, uh, winner last night at the Golden Globes for a couple of awards. Um, I should just start by saying, my name is Colin, and if I'm cut off abruptly during this episode, it's because Barbara Streisand ranted for a little too long. Um, (laughs) As I said, Golden Globe winner last night for Best Original Score uh, and also for Best Director for Guillermo del Toro. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that as well, and also uh, just about maybe the potential for this to get Oscar nominations, and some of my opinions on The Shape of Water, which is, I guess, all around a movie that has kind of just, you know, been, I guess, steamrolling everything as far as awards go, and uh, it's considered to be one of the front runners for everything, and every critic just loves this movie, and uh, I have to be honest, I mean, <laughs> there are things about this movie I'll come right out and say I absolutely love, and then other things about this movie where I just... I. I don't understand. Um, but overall, I think by the end of this, I'm going to have kind of a, an odd reaction to this movie. Um, the one thing I should say is that this movie, if you're not familiar with what it's about, it's basically, you know, it takes place during the Cold War. I kind of thought as the movie started, this was going to be like maybe the mid to late 50s. Um, it has kind of this, you know, weird fantasy-like feel, uh, like a Pleasantville, like dark gothic Pleasantville-like feel to it as far as the look of the movie goes. But there's one moment where you could hear, like, uh, you know, a Kennedy speech from the Cuban Missile Crisis in the background. So, really, I mean, this movie should be taking place around 1962. And uh, just involving, you know, a government science lab. And they discover this creature, the sea creature, kind of like Creature from the Black Lagoon. And uh, it's more or less about, I guess, a, a janitor, a mute janitor, who discovers this creature and learns to communicate with it and builds a relationship with it. And it's really kind of a sweet story about a sea monster and a a girl. Um, Wow, uh, uh, this is a spoiler-free review. Um, (laughs) There are certain things I won't be able to say in this movie, but uh, you'll have to see it yourself to figure out. As soon as you see this movie, you're going to understand where some of my um, odd opinions on this come in. But that's the gist of it, and really that's all I knew. Uh, Maybe not even that much going into this movie, you know. For the most part, I like to keep up on all trailers and all movies and everything, and, you know, I'm a fan of Guillermo del Toro. I thought Pacific Rim was great. Um, I have to be honest, I never saw Pan's Labyrinth, but, you know, a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies I'm a huge fan of. Um, Particularly, actually, last year or the year before, I even mentioned this in the Molly's Game episode, Crimson Peak, uh, the last movie he made was really different for him a kind of a period horror film almost a throwback to like these period gothic haunted house movies and i just thought jessica chastain alone in that was uh, amazing so I'll, I'll find a way to mention jessica chastain in pretty much every episode here but uh shape of water is i guess this is what he does best like kind of these these weird monster movies i mean pan's labyrinth you know is very similar to this um and i knew nothing going in except for it involved some type of weird creature and it involved a girl who communicates with it. And I didn't even watch a trailer. And every once in a while, I like to just go into movies not knowing. Um, for the most part, I will, I figure, every once every month, two months, I'll just go on YouTube and I'll just watch every new trailer I could find. You know, whether I've heard of the movie or not. Um, other things, if it just happens to slip me by, I don't go out of my way to watch a trailer. And this was probably the only time this year there's a major movie that I was able to go into it 
know nothing about it and uh, actually watch a movie. I'd never seen one clip of this even, not a TV spot, nothing. Uh, I saw the poster um, and that was pretty much it. And in a way, I think that helped me enjoy this movie a little bit more. And in another way, maybe it did. Well, I think it did prepare me. As far as these spoiler-free reviews go, what we'll basically say is we try to keep this to you know a minimum of this is what was shown in the trailer. This is what's been released about the movie. You know, in clips online. This is what the directors, the actors, have actually talked about. There are some things in this movie that I don't know if it's public. Uh, therefore, I don't know if I should be talking about it. So I'll kind of dance around some of these things. But if you've seen this movie, you're going to get it. If you haven't seen it, go see the movie anyways. Because some of the weird stuff in this movie, it doesn't take away from the good stuff. And really, I think the first hour of this movie, it was it's not what you expect from Guillermo del Toro. Because it's not really a thriller. The majority of the stuff he's done has been thriller-type movies. And I guess you can kind of look at you know Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, and again, I haven't seen the movie, but from everything I know about it, it maybe crosses horror a little bit more with fairy tales. And I'd consider this one more like a fairy tale in a way set in the Cold War. Uh, but the first thing I really liked about it just was the look of the movie, as I mentioned, that it feels and looks almost like like a dark version of Pleasantville. Like this is Pleasantville in the city. It's it's not like this is likely exactly what 1962 in New York City looked like. Uh, probably more likely this is like Guillermo del Toro's, you know, kind of fantasy uh, look at what New York City... And in a way... I guess the biggest comparison you can make between what Guillermo del Toro's style is in this movie would be like a Tim Burton movie in a way. Um, and I'll say the biggest difference is that Guillermo del Toro has talent. Tim Burton's talent left him probably 20 years ago. Uh, but I did like that he was subtle with this. And unlike if Tim Burton was directing Shape of Water, I mean, this just would have been completely ridiculous and over the top. And, and there's some restraint here. I mean, it feels real world, but it also feels a little bit non-real world, a little bit fairy tale. And uh, I guess the first 45 minutes at least is really just sort of that setup of the movie. You know, there's this mute janitor who works at a, uh, you know, a science lab and uh, it's a government science lab and they bring in this creature that she just sort of discovers when she goes in there to sweep the floor every once in a while or to dust. And she learns to communicate with this, whereas the the government, which is really led by Michael Shannon in this, who, I mean, Michael Shannon, we talked about a lot in the uh, episodes for the DC movies with General Zod. But, I mean, the guy's pretty much born to play a villain, and he's playing exactly what you expect in this. I mean, he is, like, the nastiest government villain ever, although I will say, I think his character might be a little bit misunderstood in this movie. Um, but uh, uh, the lead character, um, Eliza, is played by Sally Hawkins, who uh, was nominated for an Oscar for Blue Jasmine with Cate Blanchett a couple years ago. Uh, she popped up briefly in the Godzilla movie. I mean, most people aren't going to be as familiar with her, even though she's been around for a long time. Uh, and I guess this will kind of be her breakthrough movie. Um, and re really, I guess the first 45 minutes of this movie is just she has relationships with two separate people. There's Octavia Spencer, who was in The Help, I think got nominated for an Oscar for The Help, got nominated for an Oscar kind of questionably last year for maybe about five minutes of screen time in Hidden Figures. Uh, and in my opinion, was probably the weakest of the actors in Hidden Figures, yet of course, she's Octavia Spencer. She has to get an Oscar nomination. So the one thing, mark my words, Octavia Spencer gets Best Supporting Actress nomination for Shape of Water. Uh, so she has that relationship at work. Uh, Sally Hawkins does, and uh, she's mute. So, I mean, the first thing you really see is that everybody around her learns to sign, and that has a lot to do with this movie. I mean, she is learning to communicate with this creature because to her, it doesn't really matter. And that's one of the smart things that Guillermo del Toro did in this movie is that it's not just a thing of like 
creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, why would you communicate this? Or in King Kong, why would, you know, in the original movie it was done right, but Peter Jackson version, why is Naomi Watts in love with this giant ape? They really don't tell you why. And in this movie, he gives you a reason why. This woman is mute, she can hear properly, she can't communicate. So signing to her, I mean, it makes perfect sense. She can teach this creature to sign the same way that she taught Octavia Spencer to sign. And then the other relationship she has is kind of at home. She has this neighbor played by Richard Jenkins, uh, who uh, is uh, his backstory, even more subtle. And I love him probably more than anybody else in this movie. And uh, it's just sort of about the fact that, you know, she has these two friends on the outside, but she makes this new friend that presents a bit of a problem for me in this movie when you get about an hour into it. But uh, still, I actually really like just watching, you know, uh, how she communicates with the two. And the one cool thing with Richard Jenkins' character is when she's at home, you know, you learn very quickly that Richard Jenkins, Richard Jenkins is, uh, you know, obviously 1962. He's gay. He's in the closet. You know, he's. They don't make that a major point of the movie. It's just something in the background, and it works really well for his character. Uh, again, just you know, showing why he would be friends with this mute girl, and uh, you know. The work stuff when Michael Shannon comes in, I mean, he's introduced probably uh, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, and he's just the oddest villain ever. And they do things with him in this movie, and this is what I love. Even though the first 45 minutes is kind of just this nice movie about this janitor learning to communicate with this creature and kind of her lonely life, um, it's it's the little things Guillermo del Toro does in this, like Michael Shannon. The way he's introduced is he basically just walks into the men's room as Sally uh, Hawkins and uh, Octavia Spencer are cleaning it. And he's like, oh, just don't mind me. And he basically washes his hands first. And this isn't too much of a spoiler. It's just an introduction. And then he, you know, just whips it out and goes right in front of them. And then he doesn't wash his hands afterwards. And he gives a speech as to why he wouldn't wash his hands. Why'd wash it before and not after? There's just some odd things with his character that all work. Like, there's a quirkiness in this movie that you know if Tim Burton was doing this, would have gone so over the top with it, would have been nauseating. But the way Guillermo del Toro does it, it's just, it's reserved, it's subtle. And he is a nasty villain. And I guess the conflict of this movie just becomes uh, that Michael Shannon wants to destroy this creature... Uh, is he's like this evil government guy and uh, Sally Hawkins wants to spare it and there is another character in this movie that I won't give too much away from uh, Michael Stahlberg plays him who uh, uh, I mean if you are a fan of the Coen brothers you know he was in uh, a movie that they made uh, what was it called again it's uh, probably one of the most underrated Coen brothers movies um, the, the serious man, uh, and then also he was—he had a really quirky role in Men in Black Three. Uh, he was in Blue Jasmine as well. He was in uh, Miss Sloan just last week, which I talked about. Uh, or like the movie came out a year ago, but talked about it last week because again, Jessica Chastain's in it, uh, and else he's being in the post as well. He's in Call Me by Your Name, so he was in three. Golden Globe nominated Best Picture movies this year. So watch Michael Stolberg. Um, his character—we can't give too much away for for him, but. Uh, Again, he's the government who agent who doesn't want to destroy this. And about halfway through the movie, I'm feeling like, you know, this movie's really starting to pick up and suddenly it just gets really tense and it almost becomes like a Cold War spy movie where it just becomes about we need to get this creature out of the lab before they kill it. And that's kind of where the the spoiler-free stuff uh, can end because everything in the second half of the movie, it's hard to talk about because we give too much away. But halfway into this movie, there's this incredible, maybe 10-minute-long sequence about trying to get this thing out, and it almost suddenly feels like a different movie. But normally when I'm watching something and a movie just, the tone drastically changes, 
and the subject matter drastically changes and it feels like it's a different movie all of a sudden. I hate that. And it really worked here. It kind of just surprised you and uh, it made it feel more Cold War-like as well with kind of that spy stuff. But that sequence alone is is worth this movie being a buy-it. Um, not, that's not giving away my review, really. Uh, it's just that sequence is incredible and just you know, how uh, much it involves and uh, the, the music as well. Alexander Dayplatt, who did the score for this, uh, who won the Golden Globe last night, I mean... I'm still disgusted when I was watching the Golden Globes and I didn't see The Darkest Hour nominated for Best Original Score because I did mention that's probably the best score I've heard in years. But, I mean, this sequence alone, the music, fantastic and really carries it. Uh, And then the second half of the movie comes. So, I mean, I'm loving everything in the movie up until this point. Knew nothing about it going in. I thought the... uh, the, the, the quirks of this movie are just quirky enough, but not quirky enough to be nauseating. The look of the movie is completely unique. Uh, I love the, all the throwbacks of the creature from the Black Lagoon, which, you know, I'm a huge fan of, like, the classic monster movies, you know, whether it be the, the Toho ones like Godzilla or King Kong or, you know, just the universal monster ones like Creature from the Black Lagoon is probably my favorite. I love all the throwbacks to that. Um, I love the characters. I mean, there's so much life in all of these characters. Like, every character in the movie... Like, Characters that appear on screen, there's one character in particular uh, who is, I guess, kind of like a right-hand man for Michael Shannon in this. And uh, he's, I, I recognize him as, like, well, during the opening credits, David Hewlett plays him. He's a great Canadian actor who is in a TV show, um, uh, a couple of Canadian TV shows. I mean, the Stargate shows he's uh, known for probably mostly, but uh, he was on a show called Traders, which was just you know incredible on that show. He was... Uh, in so many great Canadian movies, uh, Treed Murray and Cube, but uh, he popped up briefly as the pilot that kind of starts the outbreak in the planet, first Rise of the Planet of the Apes movie. Uh, this is a guy who's so good. I mean, he's been waiting for a, a breakthrough. A great Canadian actor who hasn't really even had a huge breakthrough here in Canada. His character, I mean, I knew he was in the movie, and it took halfway for this movie to be over before I realized it was him, and I'm a big fan of his. Just that minor character has so much personality. I mean, every every character here is just so full of life that that carries you through the first hour of the movie, which can be a little bit slow. Uh, then the spy sequence comes, and then everything else sort of changes after that. And I can't get into too many details, but for the most part, the second half really does hold up with that whole, uh, what are we going to do with this creature? Um, is the creature going to survive in the real world and all that? And I, I still love the second half of the movie, but... This is where anybody who has seen the movie probably gets where I'm going with this. Uh, anybody who's seen this movie and loves it is going to come up with some incredible explanation as for why this was necessary. Anybody who hasn't seen the movie, when you watch this, you're going to immediately know what I'm talking about. They take a twist in this story and do something that I felt was unnecessary. I'm not even talking about you know, that it was controversial or inappropriate, although some people may say it is. It was just, for me, it, it, it didn't fit the story. Um, and I can't give, oh, I wish that we could do a spoiler review here. Um, I can't give too much away, but just the direction that it takes, I, I didn't feel like that was what, I, in my head, I'm thinking this movie works better without taking that direction because it really should just be about, uh, you know, this lonely woman who, you know, wants to communicate. And that's part of where my issue is because the direction that they take, it relates to that a little bit. And, Part of the problem is that you've made this movie, and this is, I think, the major flaw of The Shape of Water that most people aren't really picking up on at this point, is that the main character, Eliza, she's supposed to be lonely, and she even says the reason that she wants to save this creature is because, you know, the creature sees her for who she is because, you know, uh, it doesn't see, oh, this woman can't talk, because it can't talk either, like, uh, in... 
it's mine, the creature's mine, they're on the same level. And she's talking about how she needs this because she has nobody. And I'm thinking, she's got like Octavia Spencer at work, who's like her best friend, and they have this incredible rapport, and they get along really well. And you really get that these two, you know, are great friends. And then at home, she's got Richard Jenkins, you know, her neighbor. And you get that they're like, you know, amazing friends. I mean, in any other movie, these two characters make her the most complete human being on the planet. And yet suddenly she's like, I need this creature because I have nobody. And that, it hurts the movie, in my opinion. But yet, Guillermo del Toro did a good job of kind of hiding that because the majority of people aren't picking up on it. It is a major flaw in the movie when your character is supposed to be so lonely and yet they have all these people surrounding them. Um, Can't talk much more about what happens in the second half except the things that I have complaints about, it's maybe two or three scenes. And for the most part, you can kind of ignore it and work around it. And even a few of those scenes would work on their own. It's just... Oh, when you see the movie, you'll get instantly what I'm saying. And feel free to uh, <laughs> uh, debate me uh, and write us into the show here to debate me on why it works. I think it doesn't work just because I think it's not even necessarily it doesn't work. To me, it takes you out of the movie a little bit. Uh, and it's maybe a little bit more than we needed because I feel like this worked on a simpler level. And that's everything Guillermo del Toro does right in this movie is having it work on a simple level. Uh, but just going through all the characters first here, I mean, Sally Hawkins is Eliza. I knew she was nominated for a Golden Globe. It was pretty much a given she's going to get nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. Um, we'll go back and re-edit all of these when I'm wrong about all my predictions on Darkest Hour, Molly's Game, everything else so far. But I, usually I don't like it when somebody can get nominated. And it's I, I mentioned this with the um, Darkest Hour, that one of my biggest complaints with Kate Blanchett was that she won the Oscar for basically doing an impression of Katharine Hepburn for a character that had no depth in The Aviator. Uh, this is a little bit different. Is another one of the things I don't like is if somebody just does something different, then oh, they they have to get an Oscar nomination. This person, you know, gained a hundred pounds for the role or lost a hundred pounds for their role. Let's give them the Oscar. That's dedication. It needs to come down to the performance. And knowing that she's mute in this movie and doesn't really speak, I think she has one or two lines in a dream sequence. Um, I I I wasn't a fan of the idea that somebody could get nominated just because wow they did such a good job without speaking. But in this case, she really does. I mean, I I, I was very aware in the first ten or fifteen minutes of how she was emoting and how she was acting without being able to verbalize, and it's impressive. But the most impressive thing is that, like everything else that I liked about the movie, the subtlety, you forget halfway through the movie that she is mute and you're just following her as a character. So, yeah, I mean, I think she's fantastic in this movie. Um, and normally the characters she plays are very quirky and very over the top. So to have her be reserved like this must have been hard as well. Um, Michael Shannon, I already talked about as a villain. I mean, I don't know if Michael Shannon's going to get an Oscar nomination as well because he seems to get nominated. Every time Michael Shannon makes a movie where I don't really care for a minute, he seems to get nominated for an Oscar. Like, I hated him in Revolutionary Road, and yet he got an Oscar nomination for that one. Um, Nocturnal Animals, I mean, there's nothing great about that movie, period. And he got an Oscar nomination. Uh, but then the ones that I just loved him in, like um, the uh, Take Shelter, which, of course, had Jessica Chastain, which is coming soon to the Oz Network, Jessica Chastain spinoff. Uh, I loved him in Take Shelter, and he didn't even get a nomination for that. But in this one, I mean, he's playing your typical Cold War villain. And again, the things that I like that Guillermo del Toro did in this movie, like the subtlety, another thing that I really have to talk about is how his characters, they don't fit the time period. Like Richard Jenkins and Sally Hawkins, they don't really fit a 1962 movie. This isn't like a movie done in the style of a 1962 Cold War thriller. 
these characters belong in a modern movie. Michael Shannon belongs in a 1962 Cold War movie. I mean, he is very over the top and he's very evil. And another one of my small issues with this is that they, they almost make him so evil in the end where you're rooting for him to fail. But yet from his point of view, I mean, he's a government guy. You even get the background of this, that he's just sort of on contract. He's brought in for this one assignment. He doesn't want to be there. Uh, and you're supposed to hate him, but then they throw little things out there like, you know, he's got a family at home. And you are you don't see him as a terrible father or a terrible husband. You see him as a hardworking guy, you know, who's doing his job. He has his point of view. Other people have their point of view. And then you're suddenly supposed to hate him. That doesn't work. But Michael Shannon plays this so well. And the fact that he could be this despicable villain and, you know, in my mind, at least not be that hated. I mean, it, it shows, you know, uh, some of the subtlety he has, too. Uh, Octavia Spencer... <sighs> I have no problem with her. I think she's good in every movie she's in, but it almost feels like she's like, you know, the the supporting actress version of Meryl Streep. If she's in a movie, you have to nominate her. She did not deserve a nomination for Hidden Figures. Every other actor in Hidden Figures could have been nominated and I would have been applauding it. She's barely in the movie. Uh, so I had a real problem with that. Uh, and in The Help, I thought she was okay in The Help. But here, um, uh, she has a lot more to do and she is very good in the movie. But I th- feel like she's... She's overshadowed by Sally Hawkins. She's overshadowed by Michael Shannon. She's overshadowed by Richard Jenkins. Richard Richard, Richard, Jen, Richard Jenkins. That's a tongue twister name. I never realized it before. Richard Jenkins. Uh, him alone. I mean, he makes this movie for me. I mean, he is so good. And you never get where his character's coming from. And it's not one of these things where you think he's this quiet guy and then all of a sudden he explodes. I'm not even talking about that. It's because it, that doesn't happen in the movie. You think you have him figured out and then you don't. You know, they, they go somewhere with his character in the first 45 minutes where you're almost thinking this is going to be a movie about him coming out. And then they just sort of, he just sort of drops it. And, you know, you're like, oh, well, I, I misunderstood this guy. And, you know, he has this relationship with, uh, you know, Sally Hawkins and with his cats and you think you know him. They, they get into his work life. I mean, He's not a major character in this movie, but they give him his own little side plots and everything. And I think uh, that I know where they're going with it. And this isn't even a writing thing. It's just his performance. You think you know how he's going to respond to something, and he doesn't respond that way. Richard Jenkins is amazing in pretty much everything he's in. Uh, This in particular, I think this is his best performance he's ever given. Uh, And, I mean, this is like a television, you know, icon. Uh, This is a a movie icon. Um, probably an actor that most people aren't are they're going to recognize him and they look at him they're like i know who this is but they're not going to know him by name but uh this is the one guy where it's like if this movie walks away with any oscar nominations at all it really needs to be for richard jenkins uh and then doug jones of course who i didn't know doug jones in this movie i should have assumed because he's kind of uh i guess he made his name through doing guillermo del toro's movies and uh of course jamie and i have talked about a lot on star trek discovery you know he's playing saru the one character we like but he, he kind of made his name in like Hellboy and uh, Pan's Labyrinth and everything, playing these characters that are either CGI or they're um, motion, motion capture or in makeup. And in this, I'm assuming he's in makeup in this. Uh, but again, he gives a great performance to a creature that doesn't really speak and just moves. And I assumed, not knowing going in if this was Doug Jones, I just assumed it was Doug Jones in the suit. So, um, I mean, he's he's kind of like, I guess, the alternate version of Andy Serkis, uh, the less famous version of Andy Serkis. Um, other than that, a, a lot of actors like Nick Searcy uh, and David Hewlett, who p- pop up in this movie that you recognize, uh, but uh, you probably don't know by name. Overall, though, I guess just kind of wrapping up this review... You know, the movie ends strong, and the things I didn't like in the second half of it, 
it's that I didn't like them enough that I honestly was like thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I have to bin this movie. Every time one of these scenes is on, I'm like, I got to bin this. It doesn't work. But the things that do work in this, it does overshadow it. Because as I'm going through this review and not having, this is where I said, you'd be surprised where I'm going with this. Um, because I was expecting to rent this movie. So I'll just get to it now, buy it, rent it, bin it. When those scenes that, that came up that I thought this is the wrong direction for the movie to go in, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have to bin this movie. I was enjoying it, but this is this is a clear bin. And everybody's going to hate me because this is the movie that, oh, it's going to win Best Picture or be nominated for a thousand Academy Awards. And it got the most nominations for the Golden Globes. And you know, here I am recording this right after Guillermo del Toro won Best Director. Um, but as I'm going through this and not being able to talk about the spoiler stuff, which, as I said, the spoilers that I can't give away that... Maybe everybody in the world actually knows about this already. It's just I'm going by what I saw. I had no time to prep for this other than the fact that I watched the trailer so I would know what can be spoiled. What do people know about from the trailer? Doing this spoiler-free and having to keep out the things that I disliked about this movie, I do realize it's such a small part of the movie and everything else is strong enough that it works except for the very last scene of this movie. Not even the last. The last scene, the climax is amazing. But the very last moment of this movie, again, I did not get and I did not like. And I was thinking in my head, there's a better way to end this movie. But it doesn't take away for how good the movie is. So overall, I'm going to give this a buy it. But it's a buy it with a disclaimer that there's things in this movie, at least when I was watching, where I'm like, this does not work. And I don't think it could just be this is a weak year for movies. And I think it is when I have, you know, been looking at the movies that are nominated for Best Picture. I mean, nobody's, you know, flipping out over a lot of these movies it's not like there's a clear front runner and even Dunkirk which you know I love Dunkirk I can't honestly say that Dunkirk is a classic movie in my mind I think it's a great movie I loved it when I, if I watch it again my opinion may change but I'm still waiting for that one movie that really gets me and uh, that I 100% get behind and last year it came as the last movie I watched before the Academy Awards which was uh, Hell or High Water that was the only movie last year that really got me so every year there's there's bound to be something where I absolutely love it I don't 100% love this movie but I I did love a lot about this movie um, will this get a Best Picture nomination? yeah I guarantee it because it's kind of a weaker year and it is a very original movie there's nothing about this movie that feels like something you've seen before even though Guillermo del Toro made this movie kind of as a tribute to the Creature from the Black Lagoon and I guess a different retelling of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, the performances are incredible in it. I mean, if you know any of these actors get nominated, I'll be happy. If Octavia Spencer gets nominated, I'll be happy still. It's just, I always feel like she's overshadowed in the movie she's in and last year especially with Hidden Figures it just didn't make sense to me because watch Hidden Figures she's in the movie for five minutes I mean blink and you miss her and she gets an Oscar nomination but if she gets nominated for this I'll still be happy because it is I think one of her better performances um, Guillermo del Toro has to be nominated for Best Director talking about the Golden Globes I mean I'm sure Ben and I are going to go on a rant at some point a lot of the Golden Globes was I guess taking kind of funny shots at the whole you know uh, sex scandals and stuff like that Natalie Portman goes out there and, in my opinion, ruins the Golden Globes. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, well, she was making a statement about not enough women directing movies. There's a time and place to do that. Natalie Portman doing it at the time where she was out there to present the nominees and the award for Best Director, which Guillermo del Toro won. And Natalie Portman says, and here are all the male, here are the all-male nominees. Okay, it's a fair statement, but it's a statement you don't make when you're presenting one of these all-male nominees as the Best Director. And... If you're going to make statements like that, be willing to have the guts to say, here are two or three women 
that should be in this category, but also have the guts to say, here are the two or three men that should not be in this category. Don't dishonor the five guys who made incredible movies who were there being nominated. And if you watch all their expressions, it, I think she kind of ruined it for all these guys, even Guillermo del Toro. I remember Jamie watching this with me, and, and you know, Jamie's a woman, so take her point of view, if not mine, if you want. She's watching this, she's like, look at the look on this guy's face. She didn't even know who Guillermo del Toro was. She didn't know which movie he made. She didn't know you know, that he was going to end up winning. Look at the look on his face. He looks like she just ruined the awards for him. She's laughing in the background because she knows it's true. He looks uncomfortable. Yeah, she just said that if you heard her. Natalie Portman, there's a time and place to make your statements, and there's nothing wrong with your statement, except don't make it when you're about to award one of these guys and you've basically made a statement that says these guys aren't worthy because women should have been nominated instead. Well, then tell us which women should have been nominated and tell us which one of these guys should be... Should you leave out Spielberg? Should you leave out Guillermo del Toro? Just, uh, it just bothered me. Second thing that bothered me in the Golden Globes, uh, <laughs> but Barbara Streisand comes out later on and she is uh giving the nominees for it may have even been best picture or something like that and uh you know she spends about four minutes talking and they don't cut her off and she's talking again she's making her own statement and uh, they're given the time but then they cut off Guillermo del Toro's speech at the end just like they cut off Gary Oldman's speech earlier don't penalize the guys who won the awards because your presenters took extra time just uh Anyway, so coming up to the Oscars, uh, will this get nominated for Best Picture? Probably will. Probably get nominated for everything. Should it be? I can see this being a movie that I would put in like my top 10 at the end of the year, even though there are issues with it. It's it's kind of a weak year. Would this make it in my top 10 for another year? Uh, probably not. But this year, I, I did enjoy enough about it. And even though I was very annoyed with some of the things they did in this movie, I can forget about it, especially as I'm not able to talk about those things right here. Um, so overall, I guess I would consider this a buy it for uh, Shape of Water. Uh, should you go into it knowing anything about it? I mean, like I said, every once in a while I like to go into a movie, walk into the theater and not know anything about the movie, uh, including not even see the trailer, which in this case I didn't even see the trailer. Um, it was a cool experience to do that and to have everything be a surprise. But having said that, I saw the trailer for this movie and the trailer is fantastic. I will say it maybe missells the movie a little bit. It makes it too much of a thriller. Whereas if you're going to go into this movie, understand that maybe 25% of this movie is a thriller. The other 25% is kind of just, you know, a dramatic story about lonely people who need sea creatures, even though they have the best friends on the planet. But <laughs> here I am criticizing a movie I just bought. Uh, anyways, that's it for The Shape of Water. Um, other reviews we have coming. I mean, Oscar bait season. The Post is coming out too. I know Ben and I are both going to be seeing The Post. Uh, so, I mean, guaranteed we'll get that before the Oscar nominations come out. Some of these movies, as I said, I'm kind of considering this Oscar bait month. Uh, when the Oscar nominations come out, Ben and I are hoping that we can do at least mini reviews of all 10 Best Picture nominees. Maybe 10 days leading up to the Oscars, we go through the 10 Best Pictures, we rank them, something like that. Some of these movies we're going to be talking about again. And maybe we'll have the opportunity to revisit it. And maybe I'll say, oh, I absolutely hated the weird direction they took in this story with some of those scenes. And it ruins the movie for me. And I guarantee you, as I was watching this, I, I am guaranteeing this right now. So when we talk about Shape of Water, let's edit this together, the net best of. As good as this movie is, some of those weird scenes that come up in the second half, I guarantee Ben is going to start his review and say something along the lines of, what did I just watch? What was this garbage? This was awful. This was terrible. This was so stupid. Um, that's my reaction of here. I am predicting what Ben is going to say when we eventually get to this movie because it will get nominated for Best Picture. 
But I'm able to ignore that because the rest of it's really good. Uh, but yeah, we will revisit some of these. We have the um, Olympics month coming up too, uh, which will, you know, it's either going to start with Cool Runnings or it's going to start with I, Tanya. It depends on when Ben and I can see I, Tanya, uh, Because I, Tanya will be different. We'll be more reviewing it, maybe with spoilers actually, just because it's a true story and everybody knows it. Uh, and because we want to cover it for our other show, Off the Podium. Um, but uh that one or cool runnings will start off the olympic we'll have like the four winter olympic theme movies and uh other reviews i mean ben and i are going to be talking about jumanji at some point this week uh movie that's been out for a couple weeks and pretty much knocked star wars off two weeks in a row so i mean that's crazy uh and also liam neeson has his final action movie maybe his final action movie coming out this weekend and i already told jamie that she has to go with me and she's willing to do it because she ruined my birthday several years ago um by making me not see a Liam Neeson movie. Um, we'll tell that story on the Commuter episode. So if you really want to hear how Jamie almost ruined my birthday one year and it's related to Liam Neeson, uh, stay tuned for our Commuter review this weekend. But that is it. My name is Colin. And one spoiler for the movie, uh, all I can think of myself is eat the pie, eat the pie. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.